Good morning, everyone. I'm Lerato, and I'll be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How are we doing? Boring was a word I said a lot as a kid. Um, boring is a word that I hope you've not described your faith as, your followership of Jesus as, um, but I think some people may do. And, and part of the journey that we have been on as a church is to undo something of the strange notion that following Jesus or being a Christian could ever possibly be boring. It, if you were to walk with Jesus' disciples, you might describe following Jesus as scary, as full of adventure. You might describe it as, as funny and, and fun at times, but I suggest to you, you will never, never, never have described it as boring. There was very little in the records of Jesus' life and ministry that you would ever consider calling boring. And today I want to carry on on our journey called The Way of Jesus as we try our best to uh, grow out of what we've maybe got sucked into over the years of maybe following Jesus. Maybe you're new to church, you pitched up, and, and maybe all you know of Christianity is a kind of boring expression of it, whereby you know that it's a, it's a kind of moralism, you're told to do the right stuff, don't get, un, don't get in too much trouble, and, and, and really, you've been given a truncated, tiny little version of the Christian message. Jesus is not boring. Jesus will never be boring. And if you ever find yourself in a rut and you go, my faith feels lifeless, let me encourage you, simply go back to Jesus. You might have missed out on the very center of your faith itself. You may have possibly slipped into an impersonal relationship with a concept an impersonal relationship with Christianity, but maybe you're not in relationship with Christ himself. Maybe you've lost touch with the one at the center, the one who looked his disciples in the eyes and said, come, follow me. And maybe you've just been doing the stuff that Christians do, but maybe not following the Christ at the center of Christianity. Today we're talking about the kingdom. If we could keep that text up, we're looking at the kingdom of God. And Jesus came with this message of the kingdom over and over. He would say this message, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when something is at hand, it means it's close, it's here. You can touch it, you can feel it. It is right in your midst. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying the kingdom is here. It's right amongst you. It's arrived. Now I... Don't know about you, but what do you think when you hear the word kingdom? What, what, what's the first thing, the kingdom of God? What pops into your head? I've been following Jesus well 
I would say, well, when I mean as in with a whole heart, <laughs> with a dedication and a devotion since I was about 20 years old. So that means 19 years. Probably for about 15 or 16 of those years, when I heard the word kingdom or the kingdom of God, it basically was kingdom of God equals the Christian churchy stuff. That's kind of what it meant. Like, you know, Jesus talking about the kingdom, that means he's talking about stuff that's related to church and, and stuff like that, you know, pastors and prayer and church and Bible. That must be the, that's the kingdom, you know, and I kind of just grew up thinking it was synonymous for another word for being a Christian. How wrong I was. How wrong I was and, and how far from the truth. About three or four years ago, I got introduced to a teaching and, and by the way, if you're new to faith or maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, uh, we study the scriptures not because we just want to, you know, make sure we stay, uh, keep our faith alive. We study the scriptures and we, we learn because we always want to grow. There is more to God than we will ever know. And the more we dig into the scriptures and the more we get help from other people, the more we find our revelation of God growing. So yes, 16 years into following Jesus, it's possible that a pastor who has studied theology for 16 years could still find himself going, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was the kingdom. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize that the kingdom was so significant to my faith. And to be honest, I think it was the single most profound revelation in the last decade of my life that has helped my faith to come alive, to, to in a sense, go from two dimensions to three dimensions, to, to go from a, a kind of uh, just black and white to color. I found myself feeling like my faith has come alive because of this understanding of the kingdom of God. So if maybe you're like me and you're going, what does Jesus mean? What is the kingdom all about? I want to invite you into a journey of, of discovery. I, I discovered a book by George Eldon Ladd um, called The Kingdom of God. He was one of the, the people who studied it. The, his theological thesis was all about understanding the kingdom of God. I got to spend some time with uh, Derek Morphew, who, who mentored me through one of his theses around the kingdom of God, and through lockdown began to understand more and more of what does this kingdom of God concept really mean? I was reminded, by the way, this week, that every time we say a theologian's or an author's name does not mean that the preacher or the pastor or the church buys wholesale into everything that, we, that they believe or teach. It's simply, what I would say is if you were to go read Morphew or George Eldon Ladd on the kingdom, you're going to get a good overview of what the kingdom of God is all about. G.K. Beale is another great mind when it comes to this. The point is, is that the kingdom of God is something profound. And I want to answer four questions today, starting with this question, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? I'm then going to answer, when is the kingdom of God? And is there any opposition to the kingdom of God? And then how do we actually partner with, how do we seek the kingdom of God? Should we get going? Firstly, what is the kingdom I think, as I've mentioned, there are a number of false expressions of the kingdom, things we might think are the kingdom but aren't really the kingdom. There is a kind of the kingdom of the church that some people think is the kingdom, and basically you go church and the kingdom, that's, that's much the same thing. It's kind of like the come to church gospel. If you come to church, you've got the kingdom of God, and it's really not the full expression. 
Some people uh, see the kingdom of God as the, as the winning soul's kingdom. You know, there's a kingdom of heaven, and all we need to do is help people to believe in the gospel, and then you're basically just in a waiting pattern until you get to heaven. And so it, there was a huge movement of winning souls to the kingdom, and basically it's all about getting people to say yes to Jesus, and then you wait. It's the, it's the soul's kingdom. There's also the religion kingdom, the kingdom of, of the religion. That's a kind of false gospel. It's the get better gospel. It's you just need to be a better person, and that's the kingdom of God. More morality, more people doing the right stuff, and that's the kingdom. That's also not necessarily true at all. And then the other one is the justice kingdom, the sort of social justice. We need to change the systems of the world. That's the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. There's parts of all of those that have an element of truth, but when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, there are two little lights that start pinging in any ancient Jewish person's mind. They, they hear the kingdom of God and suddenly, bing, 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 stuff's going off in their head. The first is they're listening and they're thinking, David's kingdom. They know that there's prophecy all over the Old Testament that one in the line of David is going to come and he is going to usher in the kingdom. There's one like David in the line of David who's going to come and he's going to be a king who will usher in the kingdom. So these lights are going, a Davidic kingdom's coming. And then there's another light. It's Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 talks about how from the time of Daniel, there will be these four different empires, and then there will be the kingdom of God. And it speaks a lot about the Son of Man who will come to earth, the Son of Man. And of course, Jesus relates to himself often as the Son of Man. And so that's what's going on. These Jewish listeners, when Jesus says, you know, repent, believe the kingdom of God is at hand, He's talking to people who are going, okay, Daniel 7, the son of man, the one who's going to bring in the kingdom, a Davidic-like king who's going to come in. Of course, they didn't get exactly what they expected, right? They thought some political king was going to come in. The prophecies were fulfilled, but not in the way they expected. And so you've got the sense of, of a coming king who is going to come in. But I think to really get a better understanding, we need to actually go back a couple of uh, years even earlier. You need to go right to the beginning of Scripture. You need to get to Genesis, right in the beginning. Now, if you're falling asleep already, I need you to focus because this could change your life, okay? Everybody up there awake? It's a little warmer up there. You with me? Okay, there's one nodding head. Paul's giving me thumbs up. Listen carefully. It's a little teachy, but you've got to listen because it's important, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Adam and Eve receive a commission. It's the first great commission. God comes to Adam and Eve and he says to them, you are called by me to have dominion. The birds of the sea, the fish, uh, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are all yours to cause flourishing in the world. He gives them this great commission that they are to be priests in God's house, in his kingdom, and they are to cause flourishing. Sometimes you have this misconception maybe that, you know, paradise or Eden was the whole world. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's really important to get it. It's a section, it's a garden in the plan, on the planet. 
that God gave Adam and Eve to look after and to transform, to cause flourishing, that all their kids who came into that garden would be people who come into God's kingdom culture. Adam and Eve were to extend this garden. They were to have increasing dominion. They were called by God to create a culture of flourishing for those around them. This was the first and most beautiful kingdom that was in existence in the time. God creates a kingdom and he calls Adam and Eve to have dominion. They are given authority. God gives Adam and Eve authority to live out his great commission. Are you with me? Okay, then something tragic happens. The enemy comes in and he sees that they have authority and he looks at them and he says, in his mind, I need to take your authority. I don't want you to have authority to cause flourishing. I want to have authority over you. And he comes in and he tempts them. And so, not most tragically, do they give in and eat a, a fruit that they shouldn't eat. Most tragically, they lose their authority to do what God's called them to do. And now they live in a clash of worlds where darkness and light are interplaying and confused all the time. And they work by the sweat of their brow. There is great pain in their lives, and there is a deep sense of confusion and authority misalignment. The world is messed up, and Adam and Eve are no longer able to produce this incredible flourishing and to have dominion and to grow the kingdom that they were called to grow. Instead, they get into survival mode, and often they get into a mode of using and misusing authority to get their own ends, and it is absolute mayhem. And then, of course, we track through the journey, and what do you hear from, from God as he gets to Abraham a couple of chapters later? He calls Abraham, and he gives him another commission, and he says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. There's the shadow of another commission where God says, I'm still on this kingdom project. I want to build a kingdom where you can begin to bless the world. You can begin to cause flourishing, where you can transform culture from your own heart's culture to the culture of your family to the culture of the world around you, I'm on, a, on the mission of causing flourishing. These are all kind of failed attempts by humans until ultimately Jesus arrives, the promised Messiah who would usher in the kingdom. And one of the most important things about Jesus in what he does is that he comes to give us back our authority. He comes to look us in the eyes and to do what we could never do, to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and to restore us back to the people and the commission that we were called to have. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives another commission. This is a commission that's going all the way back to Eden, where God says, you must have dominion. Jesus in Matthew 28 says, all authority's been given to me, now go and make disciples. This is not now go and pitch up a church. This is about go and take the culture of the kingdom of God into the world by transforming the human heart through sacrificial love and you will begin to push back darkness. You have a new authority because I have done what you could never do. I have once again defeated sin and Satan and death and you are included in this. This is a very important teaching. This is so crucial to our understanding. When Jesus says the kingdom of God has arrived, he's saying, God, the age to come has broken into this age, 
and it has now begun, and you, as you partner with me, can have this authority to partner with me. You can push back darkness. You can be part of bringing Eden back. The kingdom of God is alive and well. You with me? Good. The three of you that are with me. It's lovely to have you on the ride. So when is the kingdom? That's, that's the what of the kingdom. And, and maybe just to double click, when Jesus is, is living his life, he is the full embodiment of the kingdom. When Jesus uh, expresses love, the words of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, the, the healings of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, he is the picture of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is here. He means I am here. I am the kingdom of God and I have arrived and I am going to be with you forever. And amazingly, he never leaves. That's why Luke is so uh, masterful at writing, because when Luke writes, he says, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to ascend. Luke writes this very carefully, and then he starts the book of Acts, and he continues. He says, he's going to continue writing about everything that Jesus is doing. But you go, Jesus has ascended already. How can you write about everything that Jesus is still doing? Oh, because now he pours out his spirit, and the kingdom of God continues by his spirit through his people. So when is the kingdom? When is the kingdom actually going to happen? I mean, this is a, an important question. If the kingdom of God is, is, has come, when? What, what does it look like? At the end of Luke, Jesus' disciples actually have this really confused question they're asking because they, they look at Jesus and they go, okay, you've risen from the dead. We saw you do amazing stuff. Now, I'm a little confused, Jesus. Are you now going to restore the kingdom? So they still got this political mindset. They're still waiting for David. They're still waiting for Daniel's son of man. And he's risen, he's resurrected, he's about to ascend. And they go, so are you gonna restore the kingdom now? Cool, we're ready, we're ready, let's go. And he says, no, no, wait. You're gonna receive power. Wait in Jerusalem and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the very ends of the earth. Here's something important. What happens in Jesus' death is that he defeats, he defeats sin and Satan and death, and he rises again, and he is inaugurated as heaven and earth's true king. Okay? He's in, it happens. But then he says, now I want you to go. I want you to go tell people that I have won the victory and that you have new authority given to you, and that I'm coming back. That you are now sandwiched between the present evil age and the age to come, and the kingdom of God has arrived. Probably the best example, I think, in South Africa is when 1994 happened. You see, what happened in 1994 is a new democracy was ushered in. It was the end of apartheid, Right? You're looking at me going, really? It didn't feel like the end. It still doesn't feel like the end. I don't know if it's gone forwards or backwards. There's a sense of integration and there's a sense of disintegration. It ended. The, the battle was won. Mandela was freed. He came in. He became president. Apartheid was ended. A new democratic start had happened. But man, the presence of apartheid still was living pretty heavily in our our nations, right? There was still a sense of segregation. There was a, still a sense of, of this, this, uh, this old past that, that followed with us. Hey, the kingdom of God is a bit like that. Jesus, like Mandela, comes in sacrificial love. He defeats sin, Satan, and death, and ushers in a whole new kingdom, but he does it in the presence of an evil age. 
He does it saying, I will come back and I will make all things right. In the interim, it's our job to come and bring the kingdom. We partner with him in the overlap of the ages. We partner with him in the already and the not yet. The kingdom has come, but it hasn't fully come. It's arrived in Jesus. It's been poured out by the Spirit, but we still live with a level of brokenness. We still live with a level of confusion in the world because although he has defeated darkness, there is still a sense that it hasn't all been fulfilled. It's a confusing space, right? But it's what Jesus has planned for us. And, and in the interim, he says, now wait, I will give you power so that you will be my witnesses, so that you will, with authority, move into the world, push back darkness, and begin the process of renewal. No, not just by pitching up at church, but by being a person who receives the Jesus mandate to walk into the world and to transform the culture of every space that we're in. We're given this amazing mandate by Jesus to go into the world, to make disciples, and to transform the culture around us. That's who we are. That's who you are if you're a follower of Christ. So the question is, well, that's when it is. It's already and it's not yet. It's arrived, but it hasn't fully arrived. And we get to be representatives of the age that will fully and finally arrive. So maybe the question then would be to ask, well, what is the resistance? Is there any resistance? Is there kind of any pushback to the kingdom of God? If Jesus said the kingdom of God has arrived, could we anticipate any pushback? And my answer is a very resounding yes. <laughs> you would be crazy to think that you're going to live in a world and follow Jesus and not anticipate or experience some pushback. In fact, if you're not experiencing pushback, there's a good chance you're not pushing into the kingdom of God. You might be doing exactly what the enemy wants you to do, very little of darkness pushing back. If you're not experiencing a sense of resistance, I, I think of uh, the, the, our buddy Marv, I don't know if Marv's here today, um, he gets baptized. Amazing. We all just like celebrating. Marv gets baptized, and the very day he gets baptized, he's stoked. He's on cloud now, and we cheer him on. We pray for him. I think the spirit, he just feels so full of the spirit, and he goes and plays touch rugby. Three hours later, pulls his hamstring like a grade four tear, and he's stuck on crutches for the next six weeks. It's amazing the timing, right? You go get baptized, and you pull your hamstring, and you're on crutches just a few hours later. You put your faith in Jesus and you start to follow him like I did, you can anticipate some girls liking you like they never liked you before. <laughs> like, really? This never happened? What just happened to me? Oh, you started following Jesus. And he wants to distract you and derail you and take you off the path. He wants to change your path. The last thing the enemy wants you to do is, one, believe that he's real, and two, to follow Jesus with a whole heart and to start to push back darkness. John Markoma talks about the three uh, enemies of the kingdom of God, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And maybe you're a skeptic, and you're kind of looking in um, at the world, and you're looking in at this whole thing that I'm talking about, and you're going, really, bro, seriously, you still believe in a devil. You still believe in, in, in kind of evil. That is just so embarrassing. Well, let me suggest to you that some of the finest minds in the world still believe that evil and a head honcho in charge of evil, i.e. 
Satan, has still got the greatest explanatory power for the world in which we live. There's, there's no other better explanation for the fallen brokenness of this world than that there is a force of darkness that comes up against human beings to live out the expression of light, as you could describe it. There is no better way to, to understand. That's what scientists do. You put a theory forward, and then you try to disprove the theory. And most people can't disprove the theory that there is a force of evil that comes in to cause carnage in the world in which we live. If you're asking the question, is there resistance to the kingdom of God? My answer is absolutely yes. And you can expect it in three ways. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is the father of lies. He would love us to believe a whole bunch of lies about the world in which we live, about the, 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 the hearts that we have, about ourselves. And, and, and let's be, be honest here, because sometimes we think, you know, he's going to be like a garden variety criminal who's going to come and you're going to, I saw you from a mile away. I knew you were bad news from the moment you came in. That's not how the, the enemy, the devil, is described in the scriptures. No, no, he, he's described as, as charming, as beautiful, as winsome, as, as kind. There's every chance that if you met the enemy, the devil, you wouldn't know. You would probably think one of the sweetest people you'd ever met. The best ploy of the enemy, says C.S. Lewis, is to make our world believe that he doesn't exist. Let me assure you, he's going to charm you into touch He's going to deceive you into a false sense of comfort. He's going to lull you into, a, into some lies that are going to distract you, that are going to do all kinds of disruptive and disruptive things in relationships. There'll be deceptive temptations around money, sex, or power that in the time will just feel like a lovely, sweet job opportunity. Just a really kind person who invited you over. Oh, just a, a little lie to make someone like me a little more. Just to get a little sense of control, the, the upper hand. We can anticipate him bringing obstacles and discouragement in a way that will make it seem like it was, it was our best friend who did it, not the enemy. He'll bring offense, and often he'll bring offense from people who we call part of the kingdom of God. He'll love to make it seem like it's coming from the inside so that we pull away and we dis, uh, disunite ourselves. He is so winsome. He is so cunning. He is so skillful. That's why so often the New Testament says, be on your guard. Be alert. The enemy prowls like a tiger, like a roaring lion. He walks around trying to deceive and to devour anyone he can. That's the devil, the, the world as well. We live in a world that is filled with deceptive ideas, filled with deceptive concepts. I think most notably the, the concept of secularism. This is an amazing deception around our world. And, and one of the number one ideas around secularism is this. You do you and I'll do me. You keep your stuff to yourself and I'll keep my stuff to myself. And the kingdom of God says, you know what? You have been ransomed by the God of love. He has come into the world and he never kept himself to himself. No, he came to the world in an amazing act of sacrificial love and he gave himself to humanity in beautiful sacrificial love. He died on the cross as a spectacle to all to show what love is all about. And in doing so, he defeated sin and Satan and death and darkness has no hold on him anymore. He has now taken the keys of 
of death in Hades, and he's given us fresh authority. This is not a message that you say, oh, you Christians, you do you, and you guys do you. It's the deception of secularism that says, you know what, don't ever impose yourself upon another person. Never, ever. You just make sure that in the workplace, you keep yourself really to yourself. Now, I know you guys are looking at me going, sheesh, I could lose my job over that. There's 2,000 years worth of people losing their jobs over the kingdom of God. Jobs, lives, all sorts. And you don't have to lose your job. And you don't have to do stupid stuff necessarily to represent Jesus well. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But do hear what I am saying. That we live in a world that is slightly and slowly and subtly trying to lure us into a privatized expression of our faith that makes us look like our insipid faith is really weak. It's just something you do. You do your Sunday mornings cool, and I'll do mine. The kingdom of God is not one that is, is meant to be kept to ourselves. It's one of light and, and courage. There's the world, there's the devil, but there's also the flesh, by the way. Talking about the kingdom of God. We live in the overlap of the ages, but we also, amazingly, you put your faith in Jesus, which I hope uh, you will do if you haven't done it already at some stage. I hope that one day you'll realize that in Jesus, you receive a new love, but you also receive a new Lord who comes to love you and lead you. And then doing that, you, you receive a new identity. You become his, you become a child of God. And as you become a child of God, you receive a new way of being. God, the Father, comes and, and he sends the Son and he says, follow the way of Jesus. It's the way of life. You start living by the truth. You start loving people rightly. You start to understand your sexuality under the lordship of Jesus. You do all kinds of stuff that you never thought you would do because you've got a new king and you've got a new way. But here's the thing. The flesh that you've got still has some pretty nasty old habits. The mind that you've got, the brain that you've got has some neural pathways that have set some, some, some targets, some goals. And I'm, I'm amazed to say that for whatever reason, when I put my faith in Jesus, I never wanted to touch a drug again. It was like from one day to the next, I just had no urge. I'd say twice in my 19 years since then, I thought, oof, that would be quite nice. But it really wasn't a real thought. However, there were other parts of my life where temptation, it was like the, the neural pathways still were triggered. I still remembered, oh my gosh, that would be really nice. And I gave in to some of those temptations because the, the flesh somehow has this desire, these old habits that just follow you through, which the scriptures call the journey of formation, where you're in the already, I'm already a child of God. I'm already seated with Jesus in heavenly places. I've already got a seat right next to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I am with him. He is mine and I am his. But I also lie in bed feeling feelings of pain, temptation, depression from time to time. It's not all renewed. Some of it is just plain old broken inside. The flesh follows me. Some of my, the pain of my, my, my family of origin, the divorce, the, the, the betrayal, some of that stuff still comes in. The addictions of, of aunts and uncles and grandparents, they still follow me and they still try to find their way into the way that I live. The pains of, a of, of, of my upbringing, the rejections, those things don't just disappear the moment I put my faith in Jesus because I've still got those memories. 
It's, it's the day in and the day out where I find myself more and more aligning to the kingdom of God, to the one who loves me, that this flesh begins to become increasingly obedient to the kingdom of God, the age to come. And my life is torn between this fleshy body and the age to come, and I find myself each day going by the grace of God to the love of Jesus and saying, here's another day, here's another week. You can have my life, you can transform it. If it's just 1%, then in 100 days, we'll be much closer. If it's a quarter of a percent, then in 400 days, we'll be closer to transforming this aspect of my life. But Jesus, here I am in your kingdom. Have this fleshly body filled with temptation and distraction and brokenness. There is an enemy, and he does want to take us down, and there really is resistance to the kingdom of God, and we really are called to push back darkness. But there's something interesting and pretty healthy about being part of a war, being part of an army. I, I read about the Bosnian War, um, read the story recently that one of the most brutal conflicts in my lifetime would have been the Bosnian War of the 90s. And um, there's this uh, girl named Nidzara who is interviewed, and she tells her story of how what, what she went through. And, and one of the amazing things she went through was because there were no anesthetics towards the end of the war that just wasn't available, she had full uh, leg surgery without anesthetic, wide awake, and it goes through the most traumatic stuff. And she witnessed similar awful atrocities happening right before her. But she, it, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. She said to this guy who was interviewing her younger, which was shocking to him, to me, um, he said, the siege was so hard. It was terrible. But you know what? We all miss it. We all miss it. Then she lowered her voice to a whisper because she was so embarrassed by the thought. So I asked her about it. She answered, we were better people during the siege. We helped each other. We lived more closely. We would have died for each other. And now, you know, it's peaceful. We're a wealthy society, and everyone just lives for themselves, and everyone's depressed. Wow. That's actually what happens when we live in a world pretending we're not at war. We live to feed ourselves. We live for our own comforts. We forget that we're at war. We forget that we're meant to be allies in the war, putting on our army boots, moving to the front lines, pushing back darkness, holding our brothers and sisters when they're going through temptation or pain or trial, and waking up early to trust that God and His power would give us authority to face the difficult days, and praying for our brothers and our sisters as we face all kinds of stuff, as we consider, what's the next church plant for us, God? Who are you sending? Where are you sending me? What what darkness am I going to push back today? Who do I need to call because I feel like this could be a tough one? Who do I need to enlist to pray with me? What am I going to do? Which people in my life group could help me through this because I am going into darkness and I feel vulnerable and I am part of a war. I think sometimes we lulled into a false sense of peace and probably are lulled into a false sense of the boringness of our faith. So how do we seek the kingdom? This is my last one. How do we seek the kingdom? Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 12, he says after he uh, tells the parable of a rich young, uh, a rich person who, who basically thought, you know what, I've sorted out my retirement. Let's kick up the feet. Let's eat, uh, you know, eat some good food. Let's drink some pina coladas. Let's, let's live the life. And Jesus says, you fool. Your soul could be asked of you today. 
And then he goes on to his famous teaching on seeking the kingdom. He says, you know what? The birds of the air, uh, they, they don't uh, reap or store or sow, but your Father in heaven looks after them. He says, just like he looks after the birds of the air, just like he clothes the, 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 the flowers of the field, he's going to look after you. I think sometimes one of the big clashes between the kingdom and our lives is when it comes to our wealth. I didn't put this in my notes. I've just found myself reflecting and realizing how often it's our wealth. I'm not saying it's wrong to be wealthy. It's how our hearts relate to our wealth and what we do with our wealth and how we want to preserve it and how we want to help our kids get the perfect education. And possibly we forget to seek the kingdom of God and let him, he says, add all those things on. He says, but you seek first the kingdom. You seek what I'm up to. You realize that, that I'm launching you into the world that I'm sending you out to go push back darkness, to, to create culture, to be the next, uh, the, the fresh Adam and Eve, to go and, and cultivate the garden, the garden of your heart. Go cultivate the garden of your family. Who's the hero in your home at the moment? Who are the heroes? This is a good question I got asked the other day. Who are the heroes in your home? If I were to jump off to like kind of think about them immediately, I'd go, Dude Perfect is one of the heroes. You guys know those guys. Uh, no, some of you don't. Um, for a while, it was Peppa Pig until we uh, abolished ourselves of Peppa. Um, there are the heroes. Bluey's been a bit of a hero of late. Um, there's some Netflix heroes. Who are the heroes in your home? Who are the people that you talk about the most that are going, they're amazing. Are they surfers? Are they business people? Is it Elon Musk? Who is the hero in your home? Because it might tell you a little bit about the kingdom that you're seeking. I love listening to the Trumps. I know for a while, I don't know if you still do it, you would read a biography of one of the famous men and women of the faith, whether it was Taylor going into the East to preach the gospel to the Chinese, or whether it was Wilberforce who stood up and abolished slavery over his whole lifetime. I honestly hope that my kids in, in the years to come look and go, these are the heroes. My, my mom and dad, they, they told us about Paul who got flogged so many times, who, who got sent to prison so many times in the name of the kingdom of God. And at his very end, at the end of the book of Romans, it said that he stayed there and he preached the gospel of the kingdom. Who are the heroes in your life? And who are the heroes you're telling other people about? Is it the latest management book? You know, coach you in your business stuff. This year, we're waging war on a kind of boring, non-Jesus way of Christianity. Maybe the band could come up, and we're just going to spend some time allowing the Holy Spirit to, I suppose, call us freshly into the kingdom adventure. Are the band around? Have they abandoned me? Oh, there you go. You're hiding in the wings. I pray today that the Great Commission that Jesus said over his disciples, if it's ever become a little mundane, that it will never be mundane again. I pray today that every time you get to Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, and you hear the high king of heaven, the king of the kingdom, speak over his disciples, that you would never read it again and go, oh yeah, that, that's just, you know, God telling us what to do. We must go do it. He says this, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations. Which nations is God calling us to? Maybe it's Madagascar for a while. We've got some amazing relations. We're going to get there, and we've got some, some new staff member coming on from Madagascar. Amazing. We'll tell you more about that soon. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching people that there's a new king. Submit yourself to his lordship and his love. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Not just, remember, not just obedience to not do naughty stuff. It's obedience to push back darkness, to bring the kingdom of God's love and his light to bear upon every aspect of society. And surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. You go do kingdom stuff and I promise you he'll go with you. You don't need my permission because he's already given us a commission. Let's stand, let's pray. Let's invite God to become a fresh revelation to our hearts about the kingdom. Jesus, thank you that you defeated sin and Satan and death. Thank you that we are part of your kingdom. Thank you that there's nothing better to do with our lives than to seek first your kingdom. To utilize our giftings to cause flourishing in the world, to push back darkness, to bring light. Pray that you give us a vision for our homes. God, we're the heroes of our homes. If we've got kids or not, YouTube stars. But maybe they're even our dedication and devotion. But that we're introducing them to the Pauls and the Lukes and the Jonas and the Davids and the Moses and the Wilberforces and the Taylors. And those who went to different places in obscurity and whose names have never been remembered, who brought the gospel of the kingdom, not to places that were neat and well-painted, but to places that needed you. God, break our hearts freshly for parts of our world, parts of our schools, friends and family who don't know you, Jesus, that we be representatives of the kingdom. It would be those who with courage and determination empowered by the Spirit would be your witnesses. God, this last few weeks we've heard stories of people renewed and refreshed in your Spirit to go. I pray for another week. In fact, I pray for another year. I pray for a decade of fruitful kingdom venture. Some of us are going to plant churches. We're gonna support church plants some with our time, some with our money, some with our full relocation. God, would you open us freshly, not to just look at how can we bring the kingdom to our regular routines, but what might you be saying to us to even mess with our routines? Speak to us, God. That's a scary prayer, but that scary prayer is why we're here today. That scary prayer is why there are followers of Jesus in Africa. That's why the church is growing so fast in Iraq 
and China because some people prayed some scary prayers and said, if it would be me, I'll go, Lord. I want to be part of the kingdom moving forward. At least today, let it move forward in my home and in my heart. At least tomorrow, let it move forward in my workplace and in my heart. At least, God, but speak to me if there's ever more. Here I am, Lord, send me into the places that you would have me. Love you, Jesus.